As Elon Musk restores free speech to the public square, some actual journalism happened, and it shows that big tech and the Biden regime are working together to control what you can say online, and just maybe what you think. The Supreme Court examines affirmative action. Could the days of state-sponsored racial discrimination finally be over? And it's election week. As usual, the discussions and information the elites don't want you to consider are right here on the Midnight Ride podcast. Let's go. It's Monday, November 7th, 2022, just one day before we take America back. And you are listening to your home for misinformation, disinformation, also known as the truth, the Midnight Ride podcast. Quick reminder to all of our Midnight Riders, if you have not already, please give us a five-star rating on whichever platform you're following us, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and continue to tell a friend. We're pumping those algorithms and getting our reach out to more and more people across this great nation of ours. And I am joined, as always, by my good friend, Paul Runyon. Paul, how was your week? Well, I, I've started to tighten my belt a little bit. I know it's not something that Paul Runyon usually talks about from a financial aspect. I mean, it's not part of, don't get me wrong, it's not part of from the economy or anything, but what I've decided is I need to reduce my spending by 26.6 cents repeating per day. So it's causing quite a bit of a consternation. So that's been kind of interesting for me. <laughs> well, well <laughs> yeah, we've been doing that a lot. I thought you were talking about Paul Runyon's keto routine that, you know, and you were doing some belt tightening over there, but uh, you were already didn't have much belt tightening left to do uh, as opposed to, to Mr. Coughlin over here. Yeah, everybody's feeling it, right? I mean, uh, yeah, but do you want to know why it's 26 cents a day? I was a little curious as to the specificity of that number. I mean, that's uh well that it that adds up to eight dollars a month, which is what I would I'm gonna start paying to Twitter moving forward to uh preserve the First Amendment in this country. Are we gonna be getting a blue check, Paul? I would like to. I think that I honestly, I've been thinking a lot about this. And Elon Musk he tweeted out the other day that Twitter is now losing four million dollars a day because of the revenue drop and all of the advertisers that have pulled out as they've been caving to all of these activists, these left-wing activists. And I honestly think, I mean, isn't $8 a month a pretty low price to pay to preserve free speech? Now, obviously, $8, the speech isn't free anymore. You're paying $8. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can say what you want. I, I think that's pretty reasonable, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, you and I both took an oath and, and went and, and, you know, served in the military, potentially risking our lives to preserve free speech for our children and grandchildren. That's a lot more costly than $8 a month. But yeah, everybody's got skin in this game, Paul. They do. Well, let's think about it for a second, right? I mean, previously you go on there for free, but it's not really free. It's supported by advertising. So advertisers, all these companies have their own agendas, right? If you want a true public square in the concept of, of that, I mean, let's just say it, in the olden days, you're, you're standing on a street on a milk carton and you're up and yelling or you're in a park and you're, you're on a bench and you're 
you're trying to say your piece, you know, all protected by First Amendment. It's not really free because those are all taxpayer supported. Twitter is a private company. So if they're not going to get the money from advertisers, they've got to get it from people like you and me. And I think that if everybody contributed $8 to Twitter, we would have an environment where, you know, it's all individually supported and there aren't going to be any agendas and it's really going to protect free speech. I think it's a smart thing that he's doing. And I think it's going to, to really protect Twitter and make them less at the mercy of a lot of these woke corporations. Well, in, in that sense, yes. But a lot of people, quite frankly, and we've been talking about this for months now in the run up to this midterm election this week, a lot of people don't have $8 to spare. You know who does? The elites, the kind of people who would wave that blue check in your face. And it used to be that certain people, certain people on the conservative right who had a good following of people who listened to them, a sphere of influence that was pretty large, couldn't get a blue check. Whereas, you know, third rate, quote unquote, journalists at uh, leftist publications could easily get it. Celebrities could get it. But it, it really was a almost a political badge in some cases. But now it may just be, hey, I am a Twitter blue user or whatever the case may be. I'm very excited that the Midnight Ride is going to be joining the ranks of the Rosie O'Donnells and Sonny Hostins and all these other people who have blue checks. Yeah, does Joy Behar, does she have a blue check? Whoopi Goldberg, I would think they do. I don't know if they can even get on Twitter. Oh, yeah, does she know how to use it? Well, we know AOC has a, we know, she probably calls it the Twitter. <laughs> Joy Behar. Confirmed. Uh, Tommy just handed me this. Confirmed Joy Behar is a blue check. So we will be joining her. Oh. And the racist and the, well, they're all, all of those hags are racist, but uh, let's see. Sunny, I don't see if she has a blue check or not. Anyway, we're, we will be there, and, I, and I, I guess I should be thanking you as well, Paul, because... Is Rob Reiner a blue check? No, he, uh, he absolutely is. He absolutely is. So, okay. Hey, Reiner, stuff at the Midnight Ride is... <laughs> <laughs> look, this is, my cha- this is my challenge for everybody is, look... For some people, that's a lot of money per month based on your responsibilities and your income. For some people, it's not. But I'd like to challenge people. I mean, if you, you know, look at your monthly expenses. If you go to Starbucks once a month and get a latte, you know, if you're on the coasts, if you're somewhere else and you go to Dunkin' Donuts or you go to the Speedway and get your coffee there or somewhere that you spend that money, think about the value of spending it to support free speech and the First Amendment. And I, I think that we could really create the true public town square that everybody's been looking for. Well, and because of some of the actions that Musk has taken, we're going to get into that in a second, some of these advertisers are, are pulling their advertising. And it's gotten to the point where Musk is saying, I'm going to out you on Twitter. I'm going to tell everybody are no longer supportive of, of this platform so I guess the concern is that Twitter may not be profitable, may not be viable. And so if you want to own the libs or whatever the case may be, I agree with Paul. It's really about principle and free speech, but also it will piss off a lot of leftists. Let's get to our first topic, which we're going to talk about at length, which ties in very nicely to Musk's acquisition of Twitter. And this is a bombshell story. We have referenced this in the past, I think a couple of weeks ago, but we want to get into it now because we've talked a lot about the midterms, but this is really about big government 
and government run amok and what threats it poses to our liberty. Just a story written by The Intercept. I think The Intercept was the company that was founded, I think, by Glenn Greenwald. He ended up leaving The Intercept because of some uh, differences in opinion with his former company. I guess they no longer fully lived up to his his ethos or whatever, but this is some good reporting. I don't remember what that was about. Remember? I mean, if we remember, he's the one that broke the Edward Snowden revelations. I can't remember when he left the Intercept. It had to do with a particular story. I don't know. Well, let's look that up. I don't remember yeah. if it had to do with that, the Afghanistan withdrawal, but there was something that drove it. Yeah. This story here was written by Lee Fang and Ken Klippenstein of The Intercept. And what it basically talks about is a something that started, well, frankly, when George W. Bush stood up the Department of Homeland Security, that was the beginnings, the origins, the Big Bang, as it were, for, for what's happening now. But under Donald Trump, the Department of Homeland Security set up something called CISA, okay? And CISA stands for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. Basically, at that time, there were, were a number of threats against our critical infrastructure, and these threats originated from abroad. There was a task force stood up called the Counter Foreign Influence Task Force, and there were a lot of concerns about Russian and Chinese and other interference in our elections, taking down uh, some of our corporate finance, et cetera, taking down our stock market. And so this naturally would be something that the Department of Homeland Security would concern itself with. Would you agree, Paul? I would. I mean, those were real, very real threats at the time when you have, obviously, the war on terror was in full swing. There's obviously countries that were adversaries to us, Russia and China still out there. So there are these actors outside the country that are trying to attack our infrastructure. So, I mean, I think as long as you do it in a way that is in line with the Constitution and protecting privacy and and everything else, I think it's a it's critical that DHS do those things. The problem is it opens it up to abuse, which I assume you're going to talk about with this Intercept article. Yes, absolutely. Now, when COVID hit, and by the way, that they had a a special branch that they stood up as well called the Foreign Influence and Interference Branch, FIIB or FIB. Now, when, when a government agency is called FIB, I, I, I start to get worried, and that was very prophetic. The government started looking at COVID disinformation, specifically related to the vaccines, and then Joe Biden came into power. And we saw under Secretary Alexander Mayorkas a lot of this stuff. I'm just going to start relating it. Remember in the Joe Rogan experience when they had Zuckerberg on there, and he said that Someone from the FBI came to him and said, you should be on the lookout for misinformation. And at right around that time, the Hunter Biden story from the New York Post broke and Facebook and Twitter and, and others suppressed that story. That story, which basically not only alleged, but detailed a pay for play scheme with Hunter Biden and some of his investors and donors to get access to the sitting vice president of the United States, Joe Biden was memory hold, and that may have allowed Joe Biden to continue to go on to win. That was the government working with big tech. Under Mayorkas, they stood up the Disinformation Governance Board, which had Scary Poppins, Nina Jankowitz at the helm. What a great singer she was. 
You know, I thought she was going to, was she, I thought she was going to be on Broadway. Well, she's in, on to her second career, I guess, right now. No, who are we kidding? She's probably at, <laughs> at some think tank right now. But, but uh, I, I, we will spare our listeners from playing that again. But we all, you know, the Midnight Ride and others, we sounded the alarm about this. People called their congressmen. There was such a, uh, there was such a hubbub from the public that they stood that down. But they did not stand down the rest of that mission. In fact, they stood up something called the Misinformation, Disinformation, and Malinformation Team, the NDM. And Facebook, or Meta, actually created a special portal where DHS and FBI and other government employees, if they had a .gov email address, they could go in and go into this portal and type stuff in. And some of these companies, you know, for Facebook in particular, could share information that way. There were regular meetings, okay? Jen Easterly, who is, I believe, a former, she was confirmed by a voice vote of the Senate to be the subdirector of this effort. She got a, an email from Microsoft's Matt Masterson, an executive there, that said, platforms have got to get comfortable with government. It's really interesting how hesitant some of these platforms remain. But- the government got really comfortable. Some of these agencies were getting regular direction, in some cases, from the Biden administration. And the DHS's plan to target inaccurate information on, quote, the origins of the COVID pandemic, the efficacy of the COVID vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the, nation, and the nature of the U.S. support to Ukraine. That's what they're working on, Paul. Well, those are all, I believe that was part of the DHS Quadrennial Homeland Security Review. They put that in, which is sort of like their, yeah. their big report. And those are all political. I mean, what they're trying to do is they're, they're taking opinion and subjectivity and trying to claim that it's factual. And none of that is factual. I mean, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan obviously was, was a disaster. Everybody knows that. Racial justice is a complete, I mean, that's, that's a scam. I mean, everybody, that's, that's being used to score political points. The nature of U.S. support to Ukraine, I mean, that's also, everybody can have different opinions on that. So what they're trying to do is target political opinion. And it's insane. I mean, what I, what I found really was interesting was, you know, you talked a little bit about that email that that the guy from Microsoft sent to Jen Easterly. Mm -hmm. There was also notes of a, just, of a discussion between the government and senior executives that from Twitter and JP Morgan Chase that stressed, I saw this in the article, quote, we need a media infrastructure that is held accountable. And that is an extremely scary quote because I read something like that and I think, hmm, that sounds like Stalin or Hitler. I mean, right? That's where the media is accountable to the state. And what does that mean? The media media infrastructure is held accountable. Does that mean if the, the media does not do the bidding of the US government that there's going to be punishments doled out? Yeah. Right? Could they lose tax status? Could people get hauled off to labor camps? I mean, that is not what you hear in a constitutional republic that has a First Amendment. No. We've all detailed at length the media malpractice that has been going on for several years. And the media need to be held accountable, but they need to be held accountable accountable by their customers and by the American public. 
who stop watching them, stop buying their their products and move on to sources that they can trust. Sources like maybe The Intercept or going on Substack and following Glenn Greenwald or Barry Weiss or The Midnight Ride or whatever the case may be. It's not the government's role and it is a slippery slope. In this article, it talks about basically the genesis for this was they wanted to stop the Russians and others from influencing our elections, creating doubt, sowing discord. But now, remember, in 2021, when Joe Biden took office, you had Merrick Garland up on Capitol Hill saying the number one threat to the United States was extremist terrorists, and basically, without saying it, basically, white male extremist terrorists. And that became a focus of the Justice Department. And the DHS stopped looking so much for the outside threats. I mean, they still did that, but it seems like, according to this article, their staff continued to grow. There were biweekly meetings with DHS and the FBI and a number of these social media entities. And their concern was, and the article talks about it, is we can't have people not trusting the government. Distrust of the government sows extremist behavior. And so- Which is really interesting to me because this nation was founded on distrust of government. Well, that's right. That's what's made this country so successful, is that the government serves the people and the government is not necessarily something to be blindly trusted. That's why we have voting. That's why we have the Supreme Court. That's why we have, you know, historically the press and the fourth estate, because it was done to hold the government accountable. The press is not supposed to be a a vassal or an avenue of the government. The goal is to hold the government's feet to the fire. And this is turning that entire piece on its head. And in fact, if we're not going to become Stalin's Russia or Putin's Russia or Maduro's Venezuela, we need the media to never trust the government, or at least, as Ronald Reagan would say, trust but verify. But they are so paranoid about the American people not trusting them that they have set up this infrastructure where they are regularly meeting with these agencies. Um, There was actually a guy at Twitter that was um, very tight with them and you know, was sending me sending emails to the government and, and helping work with DHS. That guy got canned by Elon Musk last week. And so now we are seeing a little bit of turnaround at Twitter, which is a very powerful uh, public square. But make no mistake, I have no doubts that the Biden administration is trying to rally the troops, at least in the corporate world, doing everything they can to stop Musk. Look, <laughs> There we. I love Elon Musk. He, you know, I saw an interview on CNBC the other day with Ron Barron, who's a big investor in Twitter, and he said, "Look, Elon Musk has a big heart. He does see a financial interest here, but this is a passion of his. I mean, obviously, he doesn't need any more money between Tesla and SpaceX. He's the richest guy in the world, but he really thinks that what he paid for Twitter is a small price to pay to preserve the public town square. But I want to say." You know, there are a couple issues that we do need to talk about, I think, as part of being honest and open about this issue that uh, haven't really been discussed and that, that we haven't talked about. One are the issue with these algorithms that some of these tech companies run, and that's been Twitter included. You know, there are issues, and I think social media has led to a really divisive, polarized society and 
has in some cases encouraged violence. And I think a lot of that is due to the algorithms that these things put out. For example, if you're reading extremist content, you're going to get fed more extremist content. And there's all kinds of AI out there that show that posts that create moral outrage tend to keep people more engaged. So there are issues that go beyond just pure sort of free speech issues. And I do think that there there are some things that do warrant discussion on social media. The problem that's happening right now is that the government is talking about misinformation and disinformation and, and trying to say what's true and what's not. And that's not really their role. The government is not the arbiter of truth in the world. But I do think that there has to be a discussion on how the algorithms in these, that these companies run do lead to violence. And I think that I think that happened with the BLM riots. I think that happened with January 6th. I think it's happened in places around the world where we've seen violence. So that is a very real issue. Uh, and it's very complex. And I'm not exactly sure how to solve it, but it's worth talking about. No, it is. And, and certainly, it's, we're not saying that there's not a, a role that government has to play in oversight of some of these things. A lot of the stuff you talk about certainly existed before Elon Musk. It did. Like, is the algorithm, for example, causing damage to people, right? I mean, that was a whole, there's a whole case around that now with this, this girl that was radicalized by ISIS. And it actually does put Section 230 at risk that not necessarily the companies, but the algorithm itself that is causing damage and radicalizing people. That's different than misinformation and disinformation. An algorithm is a completely different thing. And it's something the government needs to catch up on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we've talked about Section 230 at length, but got to encourage everybody to go to The Intercept and read this article. Uh, one of the things that they've got some anonymous sources, FBI officials, one of them who was with a joint terrorism task force that was looking at Al-Qaeda and ISIS was reassigned to the domestic terrorism division to investigate Americans. And, you know, including racially motivated, violent extremists, militias, et cetera. And these people are working undercover online to dismantle and disrupt terrorist organizations. You may have seen some of them possibly on January 6th or at the in the case in Michigan where there was some alleged entrapment going on. Some of the, a couple of those people were convicted in that case in the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. But there's a lot of FBI officials online spying on Americans. And, and also quoted in this story was another FBI official who said during the George Floyd riots and a, a massive amount of warrantless monitoring of Americans saying, man, I don't even know what's legal anymore. So just know if you're online, the government is watching and they're also working with or have been at the right time of this writing of the story, at least in late August, they were doing regular meetings with all of these companies. I don't know if that's still going on after this report, but when they said that the disinformation governance board went away, it went away, but the mission did not. And this has been growing in our government. And clearly it's because the government is concerned. Look at all the actions of the Biden administration, whether it was the federalizing, trying to federalize our elections and, and all of these actions taken by the Justice Department, they are terrified that American people 
have woken up to them and, and are not fans of the government. You know what I would say to the the Biden administration and some of these officials in the government, whether it be at FBI or DHS or or whatever, you have a right to speak freely online, just like anybody else does. And if you don't agree with somebody, with someone saying online, it is your right at DHS uh, or any government official to put a comment on their post and say, we disagree. And this is why, right? And that's how free speech works is that, and that's how we come to agreement on things. And that's how people can make up their minds is by someone makes a statement, someone else is welcome to refute it and you have a debate. Right. But taking down the content that the government is doing is very scary. So what I would say if I'm the government is why don't you get more uh, proactive in how you, you know, if you honestly think it's misinformation and disinformation, I think, hey, so and so from from DHS, put a post on someone's, you know, reply to their comment and say, we don't agree. Right. That's a completely legal and I think good way to do things. But censorship is not. And uh, everybody's got to be, everyone has a stake in this. And By the way, you bring up a great point. I think this happened when Musk took over Twitter. You know, of course, they've got nothing. They don't want to talk about the issues. So the president and former Bill, former President Bill Clinton and others are saying they're going to their old tried and true. They're going to take your social security or whatever. President Biden tweeted out that under my, you know, leadership or whatever, you're getting the highest social security payments, you know, highest increase or whatever. And Twitter on Twitter, it said fact check or, you know, Twitter users fact check the president and actually, yeah, of inflation or something to that effect. So uh, at least with Elon Musk in charge at Twitter, there is some of that fact checking that's, that's occurring. And it's, it's occurring against people who, who normally use the facts checkers against us. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, I think the fact checking, it's fine. It's all, that's all sort of opinion and debate, right? But that's a completely different thing than taking down content. And what's crazy is that portal, that government portal. I mean, in the URL, it was like take, it was like, what was it like facebook.com slash takedowns? <laughs> I mean, it was literally the most obvious thing in the whole world for what they were doing. The other thing we haven't even discussed is the legal ramifications, right? These are, and we've talked about this on previous episodes. But there's these are private companies, so they can post, they can do whatever they want. I mean, right? If they want to take down content, that's their right. I mean, there's obviously they can do it. But when the government is involved and the government starts encouraging and when the government starts requesting, then that becomes a, a First Amendment issue and people have a right to sue for damages. I would not be surprised if based on this report, people that have had their content taken down, whether they're people that have businesses or whether they're folks that speak out to different communities will be able to say that they were damaged by this uh, and it was the First Amendment. I mean, Alex Berenson was able to, to settle with Twitter because he, I think he was able to prove that the government had a part in, take, in requesting that his content be taken down. And if you're able to open up to constitutional lawsuits, which I think this report will do, I think this could actually help people and make these companies a little bit more scared to cooperate with the government in the future. No, absolutely. And, and like Kyle Rittenhouse and, and the kid from Kentucky who was slandered by media agencies, the, hopefully there is a reckoning for some of these folks. And listen, whatever happens uh, this week with, with the midterms, if the Republicans, they're going to try to go on some rampage with investigations. 
I think we need to focus on governance first. But this is one key area that needs to be looked at by both parties to preserve the liberty of all Americans. When we come back, affirmative action. First, it was the Dobbs trial. Another key thing that is going to possibly cause the leftists to lose it, and that is the end of legalized racial discrimination. It could be coming, and Paul and I will discuss it next on The Midnight Ride. We are back on The Midnight Ride podcast. Uh, another reminder, you can email us at themidnightridepodcast at gmail.com. We often get comments there from some of our listeners. A lot of the comments I get, Paul, not to inflate your head more than it already is, but Paul is brilliant. You know, great points made by Paul. Paul's hilarious. And it's just like, I guess I'm I'm just here to be the the, the right wing nut job guy or, 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 you know, mention the sponsors. Uh <laughs> look, we try to look, we I think we we play well off each other, right? I mean, I yeah. I as I think as everybody knows, I kind of have a, a intellectual bent to me, right? I mean, I I kind of always loved um William F Buckley who founded the National Review growing yeah. up. I, I yeah. people used to call me Alex P Keaton as a child. I, I actually know who William F Buckley is. Yes. Yes, if you remember the uh, and my you know, my thoughts, I'm never really into this, like a lot of this, the social stuff and the right wing. I mean, my, I'm really a small government, low tax, individual conservative type, right? I mean, it's, I've never really been that, you know, getting so into the culture wars and everything else. And, you know, I do think all of it's important, but you and I have different views in the way we look at things. And I think it adds up to a very complete, view of how we think America should be run if you take the two of us together. And yeah, people that listen to The Midnight Ride, I think you're going to get a, a view on things that you're never going to get by watching Fox News or News, Newsmax or whatever. Yeah, agreed. Um, and we're like the conservative version of, you know, Will Hunting and, and Chucky uh, from, from that movie, Good Will Hunting. And I'm going to turn this over to you now because we really need that, that intellectual powerhouse here to break down another Supreme Court case that you know the left will say and the new york times said last week that now that the supreme court is poised to potentially strike down a affirmative action this conservative court is getting in the habit of just throwing decades and decades of precedent out the window i, I think it's more nuanced than that particularly when you talk about affirmative action which i think the the crux of this issue paul is are we going to have it forever are we going to need it forever and these lawsuits, which you'll get into, aren't just about black and white. I turn it over to you, esteemed legal scholar. Wannabe legal scholar, Paul Runyon. So <laughs> the so it, you did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last week. Or was it no, that was Hampton Inn, sorry. Exactly. They, they, they didn't pay they didn't pay us for that ad, but so in 2003, there was a, a case called Gruder versus Bollinger. And it was really based around the University of Michigan Law School, where there was a, a white student named Barbara Gruder, and she sued the school, alleging that it discriminated against her on the basis of race in violation of the 14th Amendment's right to equal protection, as well as Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I'm going to get into in a little bit. But she claimed in the words of the court that she was rejected because the law school used race as a predominant factor 
giving applicants belonging to certain minority groups a significantly greater chance of admission than students with similar credentials from disfavored racial groups, such as whites and Asians. The problem is, is that she didn't really have precedent on her side because there was a previous course case before that called the Backey case that was seen as binding precedent. And it said that fostering diversity was, quote, a compelling state interest. So she, she lost that case. University of Michigan won, um, saying that it was a narrowly tailored use of race in admissions decisions. It furthered a compelling interest in the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body and is not prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause. Now, if you read that, it looks to me like the court was really putting this opinion out there saying that diversity was this super important thing in education. Now, there's many different views on that, right? The current court has changed a lot in the way it, it looks at these kinds of cases because... Do we want to just give Paul and Connor's opinion on whether or not that diversity is important in education? I And what is diversity? Well, that's the whole point, right? I mean, that's what I'm saying with this court decision, right? Is that it sounded like a political opinion when I read that. And for many decades, the court was really doing kind of this liberal interpretation of the Constitution. I have a different view. You and I agree on this, and I think the current court uh, agrees on this, is that the Supreme Court's not there for opinion. That's really what Congress is for. The Supreme Court is there to really enforce and uphold the Constitution as written and as it was intended by the founders, don't you think? No, absolutely. And we have this thing called the 14th Amendment, which gives us all equal protection under the laws. When you're talking about universities like Harvard, uh, you know, they probably receive some federal funding, I would imagine. State universities like the University of North Carolina or any other of the 50 states that have their own university systems, they are discriminating by virtue of giving uh, preferential admissions to Black and Hispanic students at the expense of Asians, at the expense of white students. And there was a time where the Supreme Court, before Grutter v. Bollinger, but certainly after it as well, thought, okay, we'll let this go for a little while. Yep, they did. They did. And now, so they have let it go. Um, It's continued, I think. And now two cases have been brought up before the court, and they just heard, they just did the hearings a few days ago. The first case was Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus the University of North Carolina. And uh, these cases pose three questions, right? First, can race be a factor in admissions? So is that allowed? That's kind of the first question. The second, has Harvard violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by penalizing Asian American applicants? And to get into Title VI really quick, what that says, just so everybody knows, Section 2000D, prohibition against exclusion from participation in, denial of benefits of, and discrimination under federally assisted programs on grounds of race, color, or national origin. So it specifically says... No person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity 
receiving federal financial assistance. So that is the, that's sort of question two, right? And then there's the third question is quoting the court. Can a university, quote, reject a race neutral alternative because it would change the composition of the student body without proving that the alternative would cause a dramatic sacrifice in academic quality or the educational benefits of overall student body diversity? So it's kind of a little bit of a complicated question there, right? But what it's essentially saying is that, you know, affirmative action, you know, does change the composition of the body. So it's got to say, does that A, reduce academic quality and B, what are the benefits of student body diversity? Is that provable or is that just an opinion? Um, So those are all interesting questions, don't you think? No, they absolutely are. In that Grutter decision back in, when was that? Uh, I think it was 2003. Yeah. Clarence Thomas was one of the dissenting justices there. And he said, the University of Michigan is going to have to choose between an exclusionary admission, which promotes this being an elite law school, and the classroom aesthetic. In other words, the outward appearance or, or you know, how the, how the, the classroom, the body looks just on the outside. And we've argued before on the Midnight Ride that in some ways, some of these schools, they want d- diversity only on the surface, but not diversity in thought, because there is a lot of attempts by the left to shut down conservative speakers at campuses all across the country. But this is, you know, we'll take them at their word. When this started out, this was designed to address inequities in education. Education is the key to building wealth. But I personally believe that you know, number one, everything you just talked to is it Title VI. I mean, clearly they're violating that. Whether or not, you know, the constitutional issues, the court can take one or two different route, three different routes as I see it. One is uphold affirmative action completely. Another is tear it down. And a third is maybe a more gradual approach. Maybe somebody like Roberts may say, we don't want to tear it completely down, but there's going to be some changes. Even Justice Comey Barrett was asking questions like, well, what if, you know, an applicant wrote in their application essay how they overcame discrimination and prejudice? Could that be considered? And the people from the plaintiffs, they said, yeah, that would be fine. We're just, we don't want it to be the primary thing, you know, the box and the application being something that matters more than everything else. So there could be a gradual you know, taking away. But basically, I think that this really boils down to if you're on the left and you say America is systemically racist, then you you pretty much, these people believe that it it has been and always will be racist and you can never take this away. That's what they believe. Well, also, yeah, I mean, and you need that for your, for politics too, because yeah. if you, you can keep people divided and keep keep telling them that there's systemically racism and and we're the ones fighting for you, then, you know, if it goes away, you essentially have no message to tell people to vote for you anymore. So that's right. They've got to keep it going. Now, what's interesting too, there, just to give you an idea, there are, there are Amici briefs filed, which those are briefs that it's, they're sort of like called friends, friends of the court briefs that outside organizations can send to the court talking about these cases that give their opinion. And to give you an idea of who 
you know, has submitted this. You've got groups called the Chinese American Citizens Alliance have submitted a brief with their support for these cases, the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty, the Asian American Coalition for Education, the Asian American Legal Foundation. There's also a group called the Coalition for TJ, which is uh, a group that uh, is involved with one of the top high schools in the country, which is Northern Virginia's Thomas Jefferson High. And they recently won a suit that deemed the school's rate, that school's race-based uh, admissions policy is illegal. So precedent is starting to change. You're really starting to see some of these, these policies switch. And I think that there's a, a good chance that the Supreme Court overturns these things. Now, I tend to, my, you know, I've had an issue with affirmative action for a very long time. And I went to the University of Michigan and I was there when this whole case, the Gruder case was going on. And uh, it was a very contentious issue at the school at the time. But I look at affirmative action almost like as a taking an Advil for sort of a bigger, a bigger symptom, right? It's people are say that marginalized communities don't have the educational opportunities. I think a lot of that is true. Um, I think there's a lot of solutions that have to be taken, but the only way you fix everybody kind of having a, an equal shot at things is by fixing things when people are at a young age. And that's once again, to all these issues we've talked about on the midnight ride, which is focusing on the nuclear family and promoting a good family environment and good parenting. I think school choice so that parents of kids in bad neighborhoods aren't forced by the teachers unions to send their kids to bad schools and allow them to go to other places. So there's a lot of different things we can look at. I just don't think affirmative action solves anything. No, in fact, and I want to commend you, Paul, for pointing out that the fatherhood, fatherlessness crisis is one, school choice is another, and really addressing the strength of those K through 12, really K through six, and giving, you know, but all the way through high school, that is how you address some of these inequities. But not only is it not helping, it's actually hurting. You know, what happens when, you know, you put folks in who don't clear the bar that is normally set by these institutions, they're given a pass, as it were, they're given a waiver because their scores were a little bit lower. And these are also people on the left that want to eliminate standardized testing. I, I am totally opposed to that because I think standardized testing is the great equalizer. What happens is when these people get let in, there's this thing called academic mismatch. We've talked about this. You go to a school that you're not really qualified to go to, and you end up failing and dropping out. Affirmative action has actually led to a decrease in the numbers of STEM students and math you know, fields and things like that. In California, when the voters rejected affirmative action and they had to change their admission policies, we saw the numbers of Black and Hispanic students that stayed in school and, and got into some of those fields increase. You, you got to stop putting people into schools that they're not qualified to go to because that sets them up for failure. You also mentioned something pretty interesting about these marginalized groups. You look at the fentanyl crisis and, and all of the you know extreme poverty around America, it, it cuts across racial lines. If we're going to have affirmative action, it really should be a class thing, not a race thing. I mean, there's there's kids that are growing up in trailer parks in Hemet, California, and you know Kentucky, and all these really poor areas, and they have it worse off than the Huxtable family. But they they're going to have to cut a higher score than those folks. For those of you that don't remember, I mean, we're 
Connor showing his age, but the, uh, and I did mention family ties. So we've been relying a lot on the eighties, but I mean, geez, we're going back now, what, 35, getting yeah. close to 40 years. I mean, it's sort of like my parents talking about like Bing Crosby and stuff, Yeah, you know? Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, <laughs> so we, if the parents, if you have a family in Atlanta that, you know, it has a, a black lawyer, black doctor that are married, to, you know, that's great. And their kids are going to succeed because they are together. They have a nuclear family. They stress education. But due to these policies, they will need to get a lower score to get into Harvard or North Carolina than a, you know, second generation Korean immigrant who, you know, whose parents still don't even speak English, maybe, uh, or a really poor white kid. And, and that that is just not fair. You know, so going forward, the other uh, the the other question you brought up is what what is diversity, right? And the other thing we haven't discussed is what about diversity of thought? Is that important to these schools? Because I haven't seen that. I mean, I feel like to them, they want everybody to think one way, right? Which is that the world is systemically racist, CRT, trans rights, all of that. I mean, suppose there was a commitment to diversity of thought. Should there be affirmative action for conservative students? Because they're way underrepresented on college campuses these days. I mean, that's a whole other level of how do you even define diversity and what does it mean? Yeah, watch what happens when Candace Owens decides to come speak to the, you know, Young Americans for Freedom chapter at Harvard or Oberlin or or Berkeley. I mean, these folks are practically resorting to violence. They do not want to hear divergent views, which is the whole point of education. And I feel like a lot of these affirmative action programs end up just encouraging, you know, this singular thought and lack of ideas. I think this whole episode, I love this, this entire Midnight Ride episode has been about discussing different ideas and different opinions from the, the speech thing at, at big tech to, to thought on campus there is two really divergent views, right? There's a group out there that thinks that everybody needs to think the same way. And then there's a group like me and you that feel that that our democracy and our republic only function when you have competing views debating each other and letting the best ideas rise to the top. Yeah, there was a time when the ACLU defended Nazis, you know, that, but now, you know, we're getting to the point where, and I think the internet has has caused a lot of this, is people are so polarized by these these damn algorithms and, and things like that, that uh, there are some people that think that speech is dangerous and that diversity is, uh, is only skin deep. Well, we're going to come back with a short chat about the midterms, our tweet of the week, and we'll wrap this show up coming up next on The Midnight Ride. Hey gang, Paul here. We are back uh, for our third and final segment. This is a short one because as you could tell from the last two, we get so passionate about these issues of uh, race and affirmative action and and the constitution that we almost run out of time. But I would be remiss uh, into not saying that, let's remember, we got a midterm coming up, The most one of the most consequential, if not the most consequential midterm of our lives. Many of you listen to this on Monday when the show comes out, so you may not have voted yet, but please remember to go vote. Many of you are listening, will be listening after the midterms, so be interesting to think about how you you take this into the next two years and, and how you think things are going to go, but pretty big uh, couple days ahead, don't you think, Connor? Massive. Um, don't take any polls. 
I never trusted them before. Now that they seem to favor conservatives, I, I still don't trust them. Everybody's got to go out. And how massive is it? Well, we're going to we're going to go over and, and maybe can I go first, Paul, or, or do you want to kind of go over just a couple things? Well, I had this list that I want people to think of before they vote. Your list, then mine. Got it. Yeah. So how many recent mainstream media hoaxes did people fall for? And, you know, and still they and and do they still believe them? And I want to go through this list. This is really over the last six years. It's hard to believe it's just one after the other. It's crazy. So uh, let me just go through this. Russian collusion, Trump calling neo-Nazis fine people. Jesse Smollett, the Bubba, Bubba Wallace uh, garage noose, the Covington kids, the Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot, Kavanaugh rape case, the Trump P-tape, COVID lab leak was a conspiracy theory, border agents whipped migrants, Trump saved nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago, the Steele dossier, Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, Trump said drinking bleach would fight COVID. The Muslim travel ban. Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. Andrew Cuomo being the best leader on COVID. Trump built cages for migrant kids. Austere religious scholar. Trump overfed koi fish in Japan. Build Back Better will pay for itself. Trump tax cuts benefited only the rich. Cloth masks prevent COVID. If you get vaccinated, you won't catch COVID. An SUV killed parade marchers and not uh, an individual. Trump used tear gas to clear a crowd for a Bible photo. Don't say gay was actually in a bill. The Putin price hike. Ivermectin is a horse dewormer and not for humans. Mostly peaceful protests. Trump overpowered Secret Service uh, to grab the wheel of the presidential limo. Officer Sicknick was murdered by protesters on January 6th. January 6th was an insurrection. BYU students hurled racist insults at Duke volleyball player. And don't forget, of course, that democracy is under threat. And uh, if you don't vote for a Democrat, then you are destroying democracy. So before you go vote, think about all those hoaxes over the years, right? It's hard to go back and think about every single one, but this is what's been peddled by the mainstream media and by the Democrats over the years. Yeah, and I should point out, and that's an excellent list, and I'm going to go into mine. The list is the me so these are media stories that the, the media is owned by the oligarchs, right? And the elites on the left, the politicians, the, the governors, senators, and representatives that you're voting for tomorrow, many of them on the left all parroted these stories and then went silent when they were all debunked. Here are mine. Some of them deal with actions taken by the Biden administration, others by some of these governors, but I'll just go through. The American Rescue Plan in 2021, which was unnecessary because the economy was already starting to come around, flooded $2 trillion into the economy and caused record inflation. Taking credit for job creation when, in fact, it was just jobs coming back, jobs that were shut down, by all of these COVID states like New York and California, opening the border and allowing everybody in, shipping illegal aliens to communities near you in the dead of night, after midnight, planes flying all over the country, prosecutors that don't demand cash bail, emptying the jails for COVID and not, demand, not having bail and allowing crime to just go unpunished rampantly 
across all 50 states, but especially in blue states and blue cities. Trans-radicalism, saying that we will take away your school lunch program if you don't let boys into girls' bathrooms. Supporting child castration and sterilization. Emptying our petroleum reserves to try to influence the elections. Destroying our relationship with the Saudis to try to influence elections. Botching the Afghan withdrawal, which led to 13 great American deaths, as well as the emboldening of Vladimir Vladimir Putin and President Xi in China. Um, Letting our babies go hungry. How about the FDA over-regulating stuff and having a baby formula crisis? We had to ship it in from Mexico and countries in Europe. That is an embarrassment that is completely unfitting of the United States of America. Oh, this little thing about forcing vaccines on our military, on our corporations with 100 people or more, and our medical workers. How about scheming to end the filibuster so they could federalize elections and, and maybe allow abortion across all 50 states? I could go on and on and on, but I want to go to our tweet of the week. This is from Are You Awake at Fillmore Robert on Twitter. And his little meme here, it's really quick. Dear elites, you took our freedom. You sought to mask, indoctrinate, and control our children. You shut down our churches and opened our borders. You let inflation and crime soar. You put lawbreakers first and citizens last. For two years, you've made our lives a living hell. And on Tuesday, we're going to let you know what we think of you at the polls. Signed, We the People. Very powerful. Very, very powerful. Um, I think what we just summed up in the last three minutes is years and years of propaganda, hoaxes, bad policy that I think just shows that the elites in this country are completely morally bankrupt and it's time for America to take back its constitution, its government, and its institutions. Well said, Paul. They are not only morally bankrupt, they hold you in contempt, but this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So exert your power this week. We'll be back to discuss the fallout next week on the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Have a wonderful week, everybody. 